Amen. Good morning, everyone. We've just declared together that we want to build our lives on this foundation of the love of God. Um, and we're going to explore throughout this week what that means exactly. And we're going to do so through the book of Hebrews. So if you have a Bible, if you would grab it and turn towards the back of the New Testament to Hebrews chapter 1. And we're going to talk and think this entire week about what it means that Jesus Christ is the authority, the supreme authority of our lives. And never before has there been such a time, I think, that we need to hear this as individuals and as a church. I was reading recently that according to the former chief uh, rabbi of the UK and Commonwealth, um, Jonathan Sachs, he said, we are in a moment of crisis as a culture. And when you hear his description, I think that most of us in this room would agree with him. Let me read it to you. He says, the results lie all around us. The collapse of marriage, the fracturing of the family, the fraying of the social bond, the partisanship of politics at a time when national interest demands something larger, the loss of trust in public institutions, the buildup of debt whose burden will fall on future generations, and the failure of a shared morality to lift us out of the morass of individualism, hedonism, consumerism, and relativism. We know these things, yet we seem collectively powerless to move beyond them. Happy Monday morning. (laughs) Just thought we'd start on that note. (laughs) You cannot reflect on this past year, the last few years, without the overwhelming sense that things are changing. Political changes, changes in outlook and interests and attitude, and it has left many people confused, conflicted, and divided and even fearful. And if you don't believe me, just go on Facebook for 10 minutes and you just see this all-out war of everyone sharing their opinions. And in such a moment, the question is this, what should we do? Where should we turn? To whom will we go? And a recent survey by the World Economic Forum found that 86% of its respondents said that we are suffering from a global leadership crisis, which runs from a national level all the way up to an international level. Now, of course, you don't need me to rattle off more statistics to believe that. Many of us have seen it firsthand. Many of us have experienced bad leadership or even absent leadership within our families, within the organizations we're a part of, within our communities, even, dare I say, within the church. Some of you perhaps are experiencing that right now, a struggle with leadership. Well, the book of Hebrews was written to a first century group of Jewish believers, and we have more in common with them than it may first appear. For they too were having a crisis of authority. In the first century world, living in the Roman Empire, with all of the oppression that went with it, 
the destruction of the temple. Their world was falling apart. And think about this. These, these Jewish Christian believers, their Christianity had not been an advantage to them in a way that culture would define advantage. In other words, their faith did not give them a particular kind of you know, financial prosperity or success in that world. Their Christian faith did not move them up the social ladder. Their faith, by the definition of culture, did not give them any great advantage. In fact, the opposite was true. These early Jewish Christian believers were experiencing suffering. They were experiencing persecution. It seemed as though the world around them was collapsing. Their Christianity had led them into this hardship. And some of them were slipping back into religiosity. Some of them were tempted to slip back into Judaism, questioning the identity and the authority of the one whom this book is all about, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, many of us uh, this week, we may not make such a grand theological statement, but many of us are tempted also to, to slip away. There's a crisis in church, and you begin to call into question everything about faith. Maybe there's been a leadership failure, and you think, well, I don't know if I can continue being a Christian any longer. Maybe you've seen the breakdown of your family, and you think, okay, that's it, I'm done. Some of you are hanging on by a thread. Some of you are on the verge of turning away. Some of you may be hanging in the balance right now, wondering which direction you will go. I've been there. And in those times, we ask these questions. Does God care? Does he know about what is going on with me and with the world? Can he do anything? Is he silent? And friends, to all of this, the author of Hebrews opens up with what is perhaps one of the most astounding paragraphs ever written on the authority of Jesus, and it will challenge us, and it will change us. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven." Friends, Jesus Christ is the final authority. Now, what kind of authority is this? And why should we trust him? Why should we trust him? I just want to summarize the, the points of these opening verses of Hebrews under three headings. That the authority of Jesus, first of all, I want you to notice, it's relational. The authority of Jesus is relational. Never Dear friends, for one moment, lose the awe and wonder, the magnificence and the glory of this astounding truth. God has spoken. God has spoken. 
spoken. This short phrase is like the load-bearing beam of the structure of this entire book. And this is astounding for many reasons. Because you see, if God exists, and we believe he does, then of course he has authority. Absolutely. But stand in awe of the fact that from his position of authority, he chooses to accommodate to us. He chooses to speak to us in our language. I mean, that is astounding. I don't, maybe you've been a Christian for many, many, many years. Please do not take this reality for granted. God himself has spoken. Think about what this means. It means that the greatest communication gap of all time has been closed. God was under no obligation to speak to us. He could have just made the world, let us run off in our own way and ruin and destroy our lives. And he could have said, you made your bed, lie in it. Deal with it. Of course the world is going mad. Like, look at what you've done with it. But that's not what our God does. Our God is a God of revelation. Our God is a God who speaks. Now, in what way has he done so? Here, the author of Hebrews says, through the prophets recorded for us in the book that we hold in our hands, what he's inviting us to do is to look at the whole sweep of biblical history and find that its climax is in this person called Jesus Christ. This book we call the Bible is ultimately a book about Jesus, anticipated in the Old Testament fulfilled in the New Testament. The letter to the Hebrews begins by asserting the single fact of Christian revelation. God has spoken to man through his word in the Bible and ultimately through his son. Jesus, to put it another way, is the word of God with skin on. He's come into our world to declare and reveal God to us. And as he is the ultimate and final authority, it means that Jesus has the last word. Not that he competes with what has been said before, but rather he completes what has been said before. Jesus is the fulfillment of this story. That's why you may remember if you've read the gospel according to Luke on that day after Jesus Christ was resurrected and he's walking with some of his friends who apparently didn't recognize him. I don't know how that happened Maybe Jesus was wearing like his ancient hoodie. I don't know what was happening in that moment. But Jesus said to them, how slow of heart are you to believe in all that the prophets have said. And Luke 24 says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. If you want to know Jesus, read his story. Where can his story be found? Within scripture. But now, there, there's another reason why this opening line is, is significant. The first sentence is more than just like a dramatic opening line. Don't think that the author of Hebrews is sitting there like, oh, what would be like a great intro? What would just like really grab his, the, the readers? He's not just thinking in terms of, of drama. He's actually teaching us something about how we can understand the entirety of the book of Hebrews. Over and over again this week, here's what you will discover. He will start with an Old Testament passage 
And then he will then go on to show us how it was pointing towards something else that was to come. And each and every time, he makes it absolutely clear that this something yet to come is Jesus Christ. In fact, just to geek out a little bit more, if if you don't mind, this very first sentence actually echoes the same sentence used in the book of Genesis, the book of Origins. Now, if it's true that Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's story, then it is also true that Jesus is the fulfillment of the world's story because the nation of Israel was set aside to be a vehicle through which a Messiah, a Savior would come. But friends, that also means that Jesus is the fulfillment of your story. So when we listen to Jesus, when we build our lives on the foundation of Jesus, it means you will very quickly discover that Jesus confronts any other storyline that is opposed to himself. Many of us, we build our identity and sense of direction in life, perhaps on our careers or our other relationships. We say, this is where I go to find my identity. This is how I'm going to you know, move forward and advance in the future. And Jesus comes in and says, no, I'm the last word. I am the one that you should be aiming towards. I am the one that you should be building on. Jesus is both the grounds and the goal of your life. He is both the foundation and the motivation for your life. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying. Jesus is the fulfillment of our story. Everything that you are longing for in life is ultimately and only met in Jesus. So he confronts and he challenges all of these broken storylines that you and I live for and he points us toward himself. His authority is relational. God speaks. He speaks to us. But why should we listen? Might be a question that some of you are asking at this stage of your journey even now. Why should we listen? Well, the author of Hebrews gives us another reason. His authority is unlike any other. His authority is not only relational, but secondly, his authority is eternal. Now, in verses 2 and 3, every word is full of meaning. You, You could, in fact, establish an entire theological university on these verses. The doctrinal sweep of this opening paragraph is breathtaking. So in these words that we find in verse 2 and 3, we have the doctrine of revelation that God speaks. We have the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ. We have the doctrine of salvation. We have the doctrine of creation. And we have the doctrine of eschatology. So if there's any doubt about the authority of Jesus, he is, in verse 2, the heir of all things through whom God created the world. He's not only the last word, the final authority. He is also the first word. He is the reason why you and I are even here. Now, many of us would perhaps believe that already God exists. God created the world. I'm at Creation Fest. Duh. Like, I believe that. I get it. But what is that relevance to us? What does it mean? Why is it that we need to know 
that this world was created by Jesus? In what way is his authority of creation unique for us? Well, there are many reasons, but let me just give you two. It means this, friends, that you are both dependent on him and accountable to him. If Jesus Christ created the world, then we are dependent on him and we are also accountable to him. That means that when you relate to Jesus, you don't relate to him like a colleague, nor do you relate to him like a peer. A lot of people do. They think, oh, I've, I've heard of this, this son of God, Savior Jesus Christ. He'd be a good buddy to have. He'd be a good colleague to have. He'd be a good person to have, you know, in my passenger seat while I make my own plans, you know, for my life. This doctrine of creation also means that, that God is not some kind of like vending machine that you can go to and say, God, I'm trying to live my own version of life. I'd like a few things from you. So I have some holy coins of obedience. I'm going to do a couple of good works. If I just put them in the slot, then perhaps you'll give me what I really want so that you can become a stepping stone for me to live my own version of my best life. Can we talk about this? See, many of us, we fall into this trap. We think this is our world. How can I bring God into it? God says, no, 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 no. This is my world. Where is your place in it? See, many of us, when we think of our vision and mission for your life, we think, here's my plan. I've got it written out in a PDF, Lord. Would you like me to email it? Like, dear Lord, I hope this email finds you well. Please see the enclosed PDF. It has my vision and plans for my life. And I would love for you to use your majestic power to fulfill my own dreams and purposes. Warm regards, Tim Chaddock. I don't know about you, but I love, I send God the PDF all the time. I'm like, God, here's my plans. 2018, here's my idea. Could you just do that for me? Thank you. But Hebrews is reminding us, Jesus is the final authority. I am dependent on him. God does not need us. We need him. We did not make ourselves. He made us. We're dependent on him. But that also means that we are accountable to him. See, this, this whole doctrine, this, this whole idea that, that Jesus Christ made the world is important for our lives. It is also important for evangelism. Why? Because it establishes accountability. If, if we lose this doctrine of, of creation, then we slowly but surely begin to lose the idea of accountability. I need to understand that God created this world and thus created me. And then I realize, oh, wait a minute. Right then, then, then I'm accountable to him. I'm going to give an account for how I've lived my life because after all, he is, my, he is my maker. I did not make myself. We're dependent on him. We're accountable to him through whom the world was created. But he is also, the writer goes on to say in verses two and three, he's the radiance of the glory of God. His eternal authority is shown in these ways. Now, for the Hebrew people, the glory of God was this visible manifestation of the presence of God. And if you read throughout the Old Testament, you will quickly associate this with these incredible moments of Old Testament history. The giving of the law on Mount Sinai. The setting up of the tent of meeting or the, the tabernacle when the glory of God appeared. Or later, the building of the temple when the glory of God showed up. So naturally, for many of these early 
Hebrews, they're thinking, wait a minute, this is where we should go to find the glory of the Lord. You know what we need? We need the temple. And the author of Hebrews says, no. That temple was a signpost. So friends, listen, to a people who had lost their temple, the author is saying so clearly that in Jesus Christ, you have not lost anything. In fact, you have gained infinitely. For people tempted to go back into religiosity, for people to go back into the temptation of thinking, uh, we need God in one particular location, the author of Hebrews is saying, no, 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 in Jesus Christ, you have gained more than you could possibly imagine. Don't you dare go back. Don't you dare go backwards. God is fully revealed. He goes on to say that he's the exact imprint and representation In Jesus, God is fully revealed. And the good news is he's absolutely perfect, isn't he? Isn't that why we sing what a beautiful name it is? Because when we read scripture and we see Jesus and the Holy Spirit comes and reveals to our hearts who he is, how can you not respond by saying you are beautiful? You are wonderful. You are majestic. When anyone asks you what is God like, you can tell them, look at Jesus. What is God like? How would he act in this situation? What would he do in this particular circumstance? You can say, my dear friend, look at Jesus. Now, friends, here's why I think this is so key for us as individuals, but also for our churches today. There is a great temptation to take the eternal authority of Jesus and domesticate it. What I mean by that is that we tend to cherry-pick the parts of the authority of Jesus that we like and leave out the parts that we don't like. We tend to come to the Bible. We tend to come to Jesus. And we tend to say, oh, I like this part. Oh, yeah, that's really great. Oh, I don't really like that. Think, Think of the verses we naturally underline. You know, when it says, all those who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, you're like, yes! highlight. Like, eh, I don't really like that part. To say you're going to be rejected by culture, like, eh, I don't really know if that one's gotten a lot of, like, margin time, you know, in, in our Bibles. We have this very subtle temptation to come in and cause what we read to fit our own likes and dislikes. Many people do this with their Christian faith. In fact, culture often tries to get us to force in to its own ways. And this is precisely what many people do with Jesus. We tend to, if I can use this phrase, we baptize him into our own agenda. Uh, This one author who writes for the New York Times, Ross Dothet, he wrote a book called Bad Religion. And in it, he talks about how many people have done this with with Jesus. They've chosen a a choose-your-own-Jesus, a pick-and-mix Jesus, which matches their own perceptions about what a Savior should and shouldn't be. And you know what? this even happens in the church. We emphasize one aspect of Jesus and maybe we leave out another. We like the power of Jesus. We like the miraculous Jesus. Oh, but we don't really like the ethical Jesus who teaches about sex and marriage and all these other things. Can we still talk about this? Okay, good, you're with me. We pick one thing, or maybe some of you are like, no, we like the ethical Jesus. Uh, I don't really like the miraculous Jesus. That makes me feel like I'm out of control, that he could do miracles and stuff. 
Listen, friends, we don't get to pick and choose. Jesus is who he is, and it's wonderful. It is absolutely glorious. And the more that we realize that, the more that we will be changed by it. Listen, the Bible will forever frustrate your attempt to domesticate Jesus. And that is good news. Our hearts need to hear it. We go to scripture to find the authentic Jesus. And it's so important because our spiritual condition is revealed by the way that we respond to this Jesus. In fact, I would say this, your spiritual life and maturity will grow in direct proportion to your view of Jesus. If your, Jesus, if your view of Jesus is small, then so your growth will be also. But if you have a biblical, magnificent, a Hebrews 1 view of Jesus, you will grow. You will mature. Do we recognize the eternal authority of Jesus or do we cherry pick the bits that we like and don't like? Listen to this. It was the early church theologian Augustine who said, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it is not the gospel you believe, it is yourself. It is yourself. Brothers and sisters, let us not baptize Jesus into our own agenda Or even just look at Jesus through our own personalities. We do this all the time. If you're an introvert, then you're like, Jesus is an introvert. He went away on the mountaintop. But if you're an extrovert, you're like, no way, Jesus was in the village. Because I'm an ENFJ and like Jesus on the Myers-Briggs was probably like whatever. We, We tend to like, you know, shrink Jesus down to what we can perceive about our own lives. But a Jesus of your own making cannot correct you or challenge you. And that is not a Jesus who can change you. But thank God Jesus is bigger than that. Your lives, your ministries will grow or suffer in direct proportion to your view of Jesus. And the author of Hebrews is saying, I want to lift your perspective. His authority is relational. His authority is eternal. Jesus is all-powerful. The worlds were made through him. He's the exact representation of God. He is the son of God. But here's one more question. How can I know how Jesus will use his power? See, that word power and authority, it makes many of us nervous. Because many of us, we've experienced people who have used power and authority in ways that bring harm and not healing. And so naturally, there's this question as we, as we come to Scripture and we see the magnificence of Jesus, the eternal authority of Jesus as the Son of God, but there's this little question in my heart. And there may be a question in your heart. Well, how will such a powerful person use their power? How are they going to use their power? Well, friends, this is where we get to the heart of the gospel. The authority of Jesus is not only relational. The authority of Jesus is not only eternal. But listen, the authority of Jesus is sacrificial. He laid his life down for you. Do you see what's happening in Hebrews 1, 1 to 3? He's talking about the magnificence of his authority, his powerful word. And then notice there, in the midst of verse 3, After he had provided purifications for sins, 
he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. In Jesus, something has taken place that cannot be repeated or replaced. And that is the removal of our sin through his sacrifice. Now think about the the temple that these readers, these early readers were were used to, that the temple where sacrifices were being offered, they could never truly take away sin. They were pointing towards something else. Now let me just use an analogy to help us understand that in more detail. Imagine for a moment that you're shopping. For some of you, that wouldn't be out of the ordinary, right? You're going shopping. I don't know what your particular weakness is. Let's say it's shoes. Anyone? Don't raise your hand. You go shopping. You find something in the shop you can't afford. You don't have enough money in your bank. What do you do? You pull out that magic little piece of plastic called a credit card. Now, what happens when you use that credit card? That credit card gets swiped. A little bit of paper gets printed out, and you sign a document. By the way, if you didn't know what was happening... That's, what, that's what's happening. You're signing a legal agreement. Some of you are like, no, it's magic. You're like, no, no, no. It's a legal agreement. And then something incredible happens. You walk out of that shop without actually paying any money with your product. Have you ever thought about this? How is that not stealing? Hi, I have no money. It's okay. Just give me a piece of plastic and put your name here. Great. Can I take my stuff? Sure you can. What? How can that happen? Well, it happens because when you sign that little bit of a legal agreement, you are agreeing from that moment that one day, even though you did not have the money to pay, one day a bill would come in the post, you would receive that, and you would pay. And when you paid, finally, once and for all, that product would be paid for. Friends, this is what has happened. In Old Testament history, all of these sacrifices were being made, pointing towards something as a a temporary picture that said, one day, like a credit card receipt, one day you people will go away free because these sacrifices had died. But one day, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will come on the stage. He will offer his own perfect life as a sacrifice for sin. And on Good Friday, 2,000 years ago, that bill came in the post. Jesus paid it and said, to tell us die, paid in full, your sins are forgiven. That is why the author of Hebrews can say, Jesus finished his work. It can never be added to. How dare we think that our own religion or our own good works could ever add to the finished work. Hebrews says, he sat down. I love that. Why why isn't that on a t-shirt? Like, and Jesus sat down. Everyone's like, what does it mean? You're like, let me tell you about Hebrews. See, I've got all kinds of evangelism, you know, opportunities for you right here. Jesus laid down his life for us. And this could only be accomplished by the Jesus described in Hebrews chapter 1. He is both God and he is both man. No one should pay the price for sin except man. 
But no one could pay the price except for God. So here is the God-man suffering in our place, on our behalf. If we had to pay the price for sin, our suffering would never end because there would be no way for us in our imperfection to make an atonement for our own sins. We cannot make ourselves righteous. But by virtue of Jesus Christ's perfection, he was able on that Good Friday to bear the full weight of the penalty for our sin. And he he, he bore it to the full measure so that there was no penalty left to pay. And he sat down. He sat down. Authenticated by God. Enthroned in heaven. This is our Jesus Christ. It was once said that the measure of a man is how he uses power. And if that is true, what does that tell us about Jesus? So much. Why? Because Jesus used his ultimate power, his ultimate authority to lay down his life for you. Brothers and sisters, when when you and I think, should I trust Jesus? Yes, I know he's God. I understand he's the son of God. I understand he's the fulfillment of Israel's story. I understand he's the ultimate sacrifice. All all of this. But how do I know he's going to use his power to bring good and redemption? Friends, look no further than his cross. Look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. That is what transforms my heart. This is what transforms your heart. Because in Jesus, you know what we see? We see something that we're not seeing on the world stage right now. We see something that you and I don't always demonstrate in our own friendships or our own family or our own places of work. You know what we see in Jesus? Ultimate authority used for ultimate love. Ultimate power used to serve. That is the good news of the gospel. That is the good news about Jesus Christ. He says, I am the son of God. I have all authority. And I'm laying my life down for you. Because on that day when he refused to use his power to save himself, he took our penalty that our sin deserves to bring us the rest, peace, and joy that he deserves. See, this is why I'm just thrilled to be a Christian. Because in Jesus, we finally see what our hearts long for. This ultimate authority controlled by ultimate love. So I want to say this as we begin a week working through this book. There's not a lot we know about the author of Hebrews, but we know this. He had his eyes from verse 1 through 3 fixed on Jesus. And by the end of this letter, he will invite you to do the same. Will you fix your eyes on Jesus? Here's an honest question. Does Jesus have the last and final word in your life? Be honest. When it comes to the plans you're making for the rest of this year, next year, children, work, whatever it might be, does Jesus Christ have final authority? Does Jesus Christ have the last word in your life? 
See, I think one of the reasons there's so much disappointment and frustration within our current cultural moment is because we've not just entrusted leaders or friends and family with responsibility. We've essentially entrusted them with our salvation. If it's a romantic relationship, we're looking to that to save us. If it's a new career or a change in career, we're putting so much weight on that. Like, this is what's going to get me to the next level. This is what's going to take me there. Yes, yes, I'm a Christian, but, but this is what I need. I need a, a, a pay rise. This is what I need. I need to move to a new neighborhood. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit comes and says, Jesus is the final word. When we're going through suffering and the report from the GP has come in or who, whatever it might be and says, you know, you have this illness, you have this sickness, or it looks like things in your work are going to turn out like this. Our company is collapsing. We're going to have to downsize. In that moment, you would be tempted to be bound up in fear. But friends, remember, Jesus has the last word. And in the new heavens and the new earth, wheelchairs will not have the last word. Cancer will not have the last word. Bankruptcy will not have the last word. Personal and national debt will not have the last word. Sin, shame, Satan, and demons, they will not have the last word because Jesus has the final word. Jesus is our authority. So friends, this morning, I invite you to take the burden of running your life and take it away from wherever you've placed it and put it on Jesus. Put it on Jesus. You remember in Isaiah, that great prophecy we study at Christmas, it says the government will rest on his shoulders. Many of us, we're placing the authority to run our lives on someone else's shoulders. And that's why it feels so heavy. For many of you, it's placed on your own shoulders. Take it off this morning. Place it on Jesus and say, Jesus, only you have the authority and the goodness to run my life. I gladly submit to you. So take that burden of running your church running your family, running your life, and place it on Jesus. Jesus is the last word. He is God. But if you remember nothing else, remember this. He is also the best word. He laid down his life for you. Will we crown him as the authority of our lives? I pray that we would. Let's pray that together right now. And as we pray, the best we know how, as we think of our churches, as we think of our lives, I invite you to do that in your heart, to just say to Jesus right now, as the Holy Spirit is speaking, say to him, Jesus, I give you the authority to run my life. You already have it. You're my maker. You're my redeemer. But I've been living as though I'm in control. I've been living as though I'm the one with the final say in matters concerning how I live my life, what I do with my time, my body, my money, my resources. And Jesus, the best I know how, I crown you as king of my life. I believe that you are the last word and you are the best word. You are God and you are my savior. Govern my life. And Father, we pray that together. That we would be men and women whose eyes are fixed on Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith. May we look nowhere else. For Lord Jesus, you have the last word. And we remember this morning, it is a good word. It is the best word. It is the gospel. 
And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Friends, in a moment, we're going to take a break. But what I'd love for you to do is to not check out. We have some discussion questions in the book that will most likely be on the screens. We're going to give you 15 minutes, get some coffee, get some tea. But here's what I would invite you to do. To not waste our time together, but to think about these things. Like, how do I view authority? In what way does Jesus have the final say of authority in my life? What does it look like to trust him? I invite you to do just that as we continue the rest of this week focusing on how Jesus is better than anything and everything in this life. Amen?